So, uh, in case this is your first visit to St. Luke's, we're in the middle of a search for a new vicar. So the talks are being given by people in our congregation. My name is Rianne, and I'm here today. So during my talk, there'll be the odd gap to draw breath or to let you think a thought. So please enjoy a moment of silence when that happens. And this talk is called Five Waves, Five Ways of Looking at the Wedding at Cana. I hope that one might be useful to you. Observation one. Why do you remember what you remember? Every wedding that I've been to is not remembered for what went smoothly or expectedly. It's always the surprising details that are shared. So we were all wondering where the bride had got to. And then she arrived on a horse in a red velvet riding habit with a black top hat and a veil. Oh. And there was this Cayley band booked to play the reception and they were called the Famous Potatoes. And cousin Kevin, who'd had a fair bit to drink, started shouting about how the band weren't allowed to have any beer or a ham roll because they weren't guests. And he was shouting, call yourself the famous potatoes, you're just ordinary potatoes. <laughs> and then this one. You know I was a bridesmaid at my friend's wedding last week. Yeah. Well, I sort of, I kind of ended up with someone at the wedding. Was it the best man? Yeah and I'm seeing him again next week. All of those are true, by the way, and if you want to know what happened next, ask me after. So the wedding at Cana is just the same. In the Bible story, we don't even know who's getting married. They're not named, but it was probably someone Jesus knew quite well, as his whole family was there, and his mother did help out with the catering arrangements. Instead, the wedding is remembered for how suddenly, halfway through, these massive jars of really great wine arrived from nowhere, and how odd it was to be given the best wine when everyone had been partying for quite a while. This wedding is included in John's Gospel because something unexpected happened. Because I bet Jesus went to quite a few weddings, but we don't know anything about those, just the one at Cana. The gospel writer uses the unexpected to draw us into following the later teachings of Jesus. The miracles are the standout moments, the headlines that hook us into wanting to hear more. I bet those wedding guests would have been just the same as us. And apparently it was Mary's lad who organized the wine thing. One of the servants swore blind that one minute it was water and the next, foof, wine. And not any old wine, really, really good stuff, like something a king would have in his cellar. Anyway, Jesus is wandering around now, wandering around the countryside and giving talks, apparently. So I thought I might go along, see if there's any more wine. Seriously, though, he does sound like an interesting chap. Observation two, being rude to your mother. The conversation between Jesus and his mother in the Bible reading goes like this. When the, ri- when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Jesus wouldn't talk to Mary so rudely, would he? The translations don't help us understand the conversation properly. Woman didn't mean then what it does now if you use it to address someone. 
Woman, what does this have to do with me, should more likely be translated as mom. It's not my place to get involved. Jesus is being respectful. And also I think he's telling his mother he's not ready to go public with his miracles yet. This eventual one at Cana is his first recorded miracle and it's done very quietly, behind the scenes really. So only the servants knew and Mary. And as with many conversations between mothers and sons, I think there's more going on in this exchange. Here's my take on it. Mary's saying, son, they've run out of wine too early in the reception. I know what you're capable of. An angel told me I was pregnant with you, for goodness sake. And then there were those kings with their gifts just after. And then that time in the temple where you were instructing everyone when you were just 12. My love, you were not a normal child like your brothers and sisters. And I have watched and listened to you for all these years preparing to do God's work. I know you can do great things. Jesus replies, Mother, I couldn't respect you more. But I don't think this is the time or the place to be using the the gifts God has given me to magic up some more wine. Mary, though, has a word with the servants, just in case he decides to respond to her gentle nudging. And she doesn't promise anything to them either. There's no stand well back, my son's about to do something pretty amazing right here. Meanwhile, Jesus is thinking, I suppose I could have a go. They're very old mates after all. They haven't got much money and people will judge them so harshly if the wine runs out. And I did just ship up with some extra guests and mum is only trying to help. Maybe if I did it quietly, nothing showy, just kind of sorted it out. And I do like a good wedding. And a good party. And then notice Jesus doesn't take the credit. The master of ceremonies asks the bridegroom why he saved the good wine till now. It's not usually the way things are done. And Jesus does not step up and claim the miracle. Nothing is said about how it happened. So Jesus doesn't change the water into excellent wine to impress the wedding guests. But in response to his mother's statement, they have no wine. Mary doesn't ask him directly to do anything. I think he loved her a great deal, and he did his first miracle in part to please her and save the wedding feast. And we are told the Son of God became one of us after all. And with that humanity usually goes empathy and immeasurable love for our friends and our family. Uh, Observation three, putting ourselves in the picture. The painting alongside me is called The Marriage at Cana and is by a British artist, Winifred Knights. She painted in Italy where she was studying in 1923. She's not well known and neither is the painting. It was exhibited and then stored in the cellars at the Tate. After that, it hung in an inaccessible corridor in a London office. Then it was offered to a couple of British galleries who wouldn't take it as it was too big, before finally being accepted gratefully, we're told, by a Kiwi for their national collection. And now it hangs in the Te Papa Museum in Wellington, New Zealand. The artist died at 47 of a brain tumour, and this is one of relatively few works that she painted. And each took a long time because of their size and her painstaking approach, coupled with the demands of her family life and the interruption of the Second World War. I love the calm watchfulness, the muted colours, and then the pops of pink watermelon. Knights used fellow artists as models for the guest. There's her future husband in the white shirt 
and that's her third on the left. There's a breastfeeding mother there just getting on with it too. Jesus is in simple robes, while those who look on are in contemporary outfits. Clothes were really important to Winifred Knights. She sketched designs and planned outfits with great care. Here's her description of going to a party. I wore a truly gigantic hat, a straw peasant's one that I bought in Florence, my purple hanky tied around my head first, and a blue flimsy bodice, and Nixon's black corduroy trousers pulled in at the ankles, and cream silk stockings, and black sandals. The hat was the best part, though. It was ripping to dance in the hat, but it was a bit of a job to manage. I couldn't get through the door frontways in it. In her painting, she uses the colours and the clothes to place Jesus in the middle of where she was living, in the middle of her world and who she was, a calm and ordered Italian garden with all her friends around her wearing cardigans, rolled up shirt sleeves and nibbling watermelon. The picture is packed with the details of her life, but everything looks towards Jesus. Winifred Knights invites us to update the surroundings, but to turn towards the miracle. If there was a painting of Jesus attending a wedding you were at, what would it look like? Would you notice that something special was going on? Or like the original wedding guests, would you find out only afterwards, if at all? Observation four, using what's to hand. The Bible story says Jesus asked the servants to fill up to the brim six large stone water jars. That would have been about 120 and 180 gallons of liquid. The jars would have held water routinely used for washing before eating, according to Jewish law. There's been quite a bit written about the symbolism of this, of how Jesus is making a point of using jars that were part of this Jewish purification ritual. Very little has been written about how maybe Jesus was also an eminently practical man and having been trained as a carpenter was used to seeing the possibilities of one thing being made to serve another purpose. One person's felled tree is another person's table and chairs. One boy's small lunch could end up feeding 5,000. One set of water purification jars could be the perfect thing to contain enough wine for the whole village to feast like royalty. Sometimes there are possibilities in places we previously might not have considered. Perhaps it's only us who can see the possibilities and only us who can realise them. Observation five, the importance of reflection. Finally, I want to mention what happened after the miracle of the water being turned into wine. What did Jesus do? The story says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Another quick translation note. The word in Greek for brothers, adelphoi, also means brothers and sisters, or maybe siblings in this case. It's just that most translations were done by men, and stating that women were present wasn't considered important then. I'm keen on reintroducing those overlooked women back into the Bible stories. So let's assume that after the wedding, Jesus went off with his whole family and his disciples for a bit of rest and reflection. You know how you do after a big family get together. Every bit of the event is gone over 
redescribed, relived. I imagine there men and women all sitting and talking together about the wedding. Did you see what the bride had on? Oh my word. I would never have put those colours together, but she looked amazing. And what was cousin Kevin thinking about, going on and on at the table player, telling him he couldn't have any wine as he was only being paid to play and not to drink? And as for you, Nathaniel, I saw you sneaking off with the bridesmaid. You'll be next. Mark my words. No one will remember any of that, though, Jesus, will they? Because of you and the flipping wine thing. Well, mum kind of hinted, so I thought I'd help out. But while we're all sitting here, let me tell you what I think God wants us to do. So I'll leave you with the observation that the story of Jesus' ministry is peppered with him seeking calm after events, making time to reflect with his close friends, withdrawing from the crowds with them, eating, drinking, and teaching through his conversations. He doesn't really hurl from one thing to another. It's important to take a breather with those we love, to make time to reflect on the moments that feel significant, to search for meaning and for purpose. So it's January 2019. What will we all remember of this year? How useful will we have been to our families, our friends, our communities, our world? What would a picture painted of some of our most meaningful moments look like? Will we see the miracles when they happen?